I uh, would invite you, if you have your Bibles or appropriate electronic devices, to uh, find Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, and I'll start reading with verse 1 and read through verse 20 this morning. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, You know, the problem with a touch screen is if you touch the wrong thing, <laughs> you can lose the text. So much for drama. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned round to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen what is now and what will take place later, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. 
The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Faced with increasing population and the inability to have their children inherit farms, the Mennonites of the Ukraine in the 1870s were in a crisis. They had migrated from the Netherlands to the Vistula River Delta in what is now Poland, and then at the invitation of Empress Catherine the Great to what is now the Ukraine. They agreed to live in small, compact colonies where they would have a home rule, the ability to decide their own priorities and their own destinies as long as they paid the appropriate amount of taxes to the Russian imperial government, which they were glad to do. The Russian government, though, made two strict points of insistence. One was you can't witness your faith in Christ to anyone who speaks Russian. Um, and so the local mission impulse began to die among these people. And the second thing they said was, this is all the land you get. You'll have to keep dividing it and dividing it and dividing it to the point where after about three generations, landlocked, they were beginning to run out of economic possibilities for their children. About that time, along came a man named Klaus Epp, devout follower of Jesus, a man who prayed on his knees for hours, even days at a time. Klaus had a vision. Jesus was coming again. Jesus was coming very soon. Jesus was coming somewhere in Russia. In fact, Klaus knew exactly where. The Ural Mountains in Kazakhstan. Klaus began to preach this message in the Mennonite churches in the colonies. Created a great uproar. There were lots of divisions beginning to happen. The Mennonite experience in Russia was beginning to fracture into pietistic groups and not pietistic groups. And Klaus led a group of people out of the colony and on a long trek, it's called in Mennonite history, the Great Trek, from the Ukraine to Kazakhstan. And they arrived after a seven-month journey. Some of the people who started out on that journey didn't survive the trip. Infants were born along the way. But they arrived in modern-day Kazakhstan and waited for Jesus to come. And they waited. And they waited. And Jesus didn't come. And it was a long way back to the colonies. And so these blonde-haired, blue-eyed Mennonites decided to stay in Kazakhstan. And today, in Alta Alma, Kazakhstan, the capital city, you will find 
good Muslim people who are blonde haired, blue eyed, whose last names are Tyson and Workentine and Epp. Because they had made this trip to look for Jesus and they didn't find him. And so they simply blended in as best they could into the culture around them. We, as followers of Jesus, confess that he's coming again. That Jesus is going to continue to work in our midst. But then the hows and the whys and the whereofs of that get really confusing. We get lost in the imagery and the drama and the smells and bells of the book of Revelation. The key thing for us as followers of Jesus is to begin with the end in mind, an unshakable conviction that Christ is coming again, that his coming again is not some wish that we hope gets fulfilled someday. It is, it is one of the bedrock mysteries of our faith. If we take the crucifixion seriously, if we take the resurrection seriously, we have to take the parousia, the return of Christ, just as seriously. If we think Christmas is a big deal, the advent of Jesus into the world. And yes, on October 4th, Christmas was mentioned. You can log it. <laughs> then we can also say that Christ's return is every bit as important. All of Jesus matters to everyone all the time. If we start there, the book of Revelation doesn't become quite as scary. We, uh, we do have to ask a question, though. Is, is the book of Revelation a code book for escape, or is it a lens for faithful life? John Barr, in a 2009 article in Interpretation Magazine, says, history is littered with failed attempts to use Revelation to predict history, Klaus Epp being only one example. Dozens, hundreds of examples across church history can be cited of, of devout, faithful, good-intentioned followers of Jesus who knew with certainty Christ was coming back on June 6, 1844. William Miller and the birth of what is today the Seventh-day Adventists. Didn't show up. Oops. Then what do you do? I mean, when you stake a claim on Jesus is coming on a certain date and he doesn't keep the appointment, you've you got some splaining to do. <laughs> and in fact, Jesus tells the disciples, don't worry about the dates and times. That'll all get worked out. We are, as followers of Jesus, if you'll pardon the phrase, we are pan-millennialists. It will all pan out in the end. 
The, the return of Christ is on God's timetable, not ours. But we are strongly influenced as evangelicals by a particular tradition. Tradition formed in the 19th century in England uh, among uh, uh, folks that called themselves dispensationalists who read scripture as a history textbook and believed that history fell into seven great epochs of which the church age is but one. And over the years, over the last 150 years, that approach has been refined and refined and refined until we get what I would call the left behind perspective. The folks that would say, in the midst of Revelation, there's all this machinations going on and then one day all the Christians will just disappear. And all the non-Christians will go, Jesus, what took you so long? <laughs> Christians will just disappear and everybody else will be left behind. There are problems with that interpretation of scripture. It treats the Bible, among other things, as a puzzle to be solved rather than a story to be entered into. The Bible's a narrative. It tells a story. Now, there are mysteries in that story. There are whodunits in Scripture. But it's not a puzzle for us to piece together. It's a story for us to enter into. The left-behind approach turns evangelism from declaring good news to be afraid, be very afraid. You could get in an airplane someday and a Christian pilot might just be raptured and <laughs> then what will you do? That wouldn't be any fun. It fails to see, this, this left behind view fails to see the church as an alternative to empire. In fact, it, it by necessity makes the church a chaplain for the empire. It, it turns the church into those who would give aid and comfort to the powerful and the mighty of their day. The left behind approach in particular, wow, I did it again. This is not a good day with me and machinery air. Um, in particular, the left behind approach privileges the state of Israel. This, this modern state, uh, whom all but two of their prime ministers have been avowed atheists. It says they are somehow God's favorite people as this reconfigured national entity and therefore must be uncritically preserved at all costs and by extension then demonizes those who have lived in the land for thousands of years, the Palestinians. which I should just say very quickly, is neither an endorsement nor a criticism of the modern state of Israel. Just an observation that this is, this left behind hermeneutic forces us into one political position. And if I've learned anything in being pastor here for nearly 10 years, 
It's that there's a whole range of political positions in this group. Get, get three people from this congregation together and you've got four political opinions, <laughs> easily. And so we ought not to accept as binding on us one political viewpoint that comes out of a way of reading scripture that doesn't take the narrative seriously. And then lastly, it maintains a survivalist and a crusader mentality. In the little town of Kidron, Ohio, there is a hardware store, Layman's Hardware. The Layman folks sell primarily to Amish people. But in the years 1998-1999, they got other business. Folks who were afraid of Y2K began to buy all this non-electric stuff because the grid was going to collapse, right? Remember? January 1, 2000, everything was just going to fall apart. Old man Lehman, that's what he likes to be called, old man Lehman said, don't bring this stuff back. You, you, you buy that non-electric refrigerator, it's yours. We're not, no refunds. <laughs> you know, you, you, you bought it, you keep it. Uh, we're pocketing your money. Um, but those were the two best years in sales in layman's history because survivalists out of the woodwork, devout Christians who believed that the year 2000 signaled a triggering of the events of the book of Revelation and therefore they wanted to be prepared to live off the grid. And I suspect there are a lot of non-electric propane run refrigerators in small towns in the upper Midwest that are now storage units uh, for someone. Because that left behind approach fosters a kind of survivalist view and a crusader mentality that, that the job of the church is to militantly call people not to a new story but to a set of propositions that they must adhere to. It misses the point, the purpose of the book of Revelation. Michael Gorman in his book, Reading Revelation Responsibly, love the title of that book, says the purpose of the book of Revelation is to persuade its audience to remain faithful to God. Revelation tells us covenant faithfulness is possible because of Jesus and worthwhile because of the glorious future God has in store for us. Revelation is, in short, a call to first commandment faithfulness. We can talk about second amendment rights. We could talk about first commandment faithfulness. There is no other God. And so that means it's really important for us to understand the beginning of this book. To understand the book of Revelation, to understand the visions and the the, the, the wild stories in chapters 4 through 22, we really do have to understand what's going on in the first three chapters. First three chapters are not a widget just kind of added on to a bunch of crazy stories. The first three chapters set a foundation for us to understand what Christ is up to as he uncovers the end of the age. And so chapter 1 provides 
a prologue in three parts. There's a prologue itself, verses 1 through 3, a doxology, a word of praise, verses 4 through 8, and a vision in verses 9 through 20. The prologue is from Jesus. It's, it's an uncovering. It's, it's him saying there's, there's, there's more to be revealed. There's more to say here. And in chapter 1, verse 3, there's this, there's this sort of interpretive key that's laid out for us. Blessed are those who read this book. I don't know about you, but I spent 25 years of my Christian life just trying to avoid this book. <laughs> Anything I could do to not deal with Revelation was just fine. Because there's just too much craziness out there. Blessed are those who read this book and who hear it and take it to heart. In, in addiction counseling, groups of addicts trying to overcome, trying to, to, to live with their addiction, we would often say, as someone would tell their story in, in those groups, yeah, more will be revealed. There's, a, there's an unpeeling layers to this story. Revelation's not a linear book that sort of tells a and then, and then, and then kind of story, but, but cycles back and tells the same story in a new way over and over again. And so we are called to be readers of this book and listeners to its message. And that message is found in the doxology of verses 4 through 8. In this doxology, the power of Caesar is challenged. Look at the language of verses 4 through 8. It's, it's, it's power language. It's language about who's in charge. And, and the vision of Jesus, the one he lays out is, I'm in charge, not Caesar. Now this is... This is political suicide. This is political heresy in the day. This is, this is hard for a first century Roman to hear and appreciate. Think about it for a minute. Jesus, an obscure Jewish prophet who was executed, and then there are rumors that he rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, now the literature of these people who follow him, these crazies who follow him, is that he's coming back with power. If you're a first century Roman citizen, you're going, power? You want to see power? Let me introduce you to my friend Caesar here. This is power. To be a citizen of the Roman Empire means you can stride from Spain to Jerusalem unmolested from Britain to North Africa with no problem. Power? You want to see power? The Romans of the first century of the common era had power. And these Christians were mocking it. No, 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 no. Power? Jesus has power. Well, which narrative are you going to believe? Are you going to believe the narrative that you can see, that's demonstrable, that there, are, that there are legions with modern weapons behind enforcing? Or are you going to believe 
a nut job from Galilee. That was the first century choice. Funny enough, that's our choice today, too. Do we believe Jesus is king? Or do we believe that our favorite political viewpoint is king? That's the choice before us. It's the same one. And this doxology challenges the authority of Caesar with the authority and purpose of Jesus, who, unlike Caesar, will return to reign. Caesars, they, they have a tendency of dying and staying dead. Beware the Ides of March. But the story of Revelation is, no, 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 no. Jesus? Yeah, somebody killed him, but he came back to life. And he's coming back to reign. So be on guard. And John then has this vision that comes from Jesus in verses 9 through 20. And the vision is one that he receives on the island of Patmos, probably in exile because of some local conflict with the rulers, the Roman overlords of that period. Not a full-scale, imperial-wide, Caesar-driven persecution of the church. That doesn't happen until the 3rd century, almost the 4th century AD. The church got persecuted in pockets until then. And that's probably what happened to John late in the 1st century. He got caught up in a local dispute with local leaders, and they sent him to the prison island, Patmos. And there he encounters Jesus in a powerful way. And what's interesting about it is that the vision finds Jesus standing not above the lampstands, not beyond them, but among them. Jesus is powerful in and through the church. Good news, bad news. Good news is Jesus is powerful. The bad news is we're the ones who live it out. <laughs> Jesus looks to us and says, you're the conduit for my power in the world. And we all go, oh, dear God, please figure out a different way. Because there's nothing powerful about us. I mean, we're wrong. We have the power of the risen Lord among us with us, through us, in us, in spite of us. Jesus is powerful through the church, this vision tells us. Jesus is priestly to the church. When, 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 when John collapses because of this vision, Jesus says, John, don't be afraid. I'm the beginning and the end. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I was dead, now I'm alive. I'm on your side. I'm with you. And Jesus is present with the church. He's here. That's the mystery. When we say Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again, our English language doesn't quite capture the fullness of that because what's also true is that Christ is here right now. 
That's why we come to the Eucharist as often as we do to remember that Christ is among us. And the bread and the cup provide us with a symbol to remember that Christ is with us. He's not off in heaven playing squash, waiting until the Father tells him to come. He is with us in the here and now, in this very moment. And so the message of this vision and the message of chapter 1 is, first and foremost, don't be afraid. As Christians, we, and particularly as Christians in the West, we, we live in fear of, of what might be. And Jesus says, don't, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of anything. In the upper room, Jesus told his disciples, perfect love casts out all fear. And then he said, love one another. That's my commandment to you. So Jesus' commandment, love one another, leads to a way of life that, that, that eliminates fear. Don't be afraid. Live in hope. The one who was killed is alive. We too, who may die in Christ, will also come alive. Death is not the last word in life. Death and evil and hell are not the victors, the book of Revelation proclaims. Christ is. And so live in hope. But also live in discipleship. The church is summoned by Christ to faithful living regardless of its circumstances. Now, we hear that as good Western Christians. We hear that and say, yeah, those, those poor Christians in Africa who struggle with with conflict with Islam and poverty and sorry Jesus is also talking to us Jesus is saying to us you got to be faithful in your circumstance in a circumstance of affluence in a circumstance of might makes right circumstance of geopolitical power over smaller, less well-armed nations. I mean, seriously, as followers of Jesus, how do we put up with the fact that we spend more on military armaments than the next 26 nations in the world, most of whom are our friends and only a few of whom are our enemies? How do we put up with that? Because we've gotten complacent. Because we enjoy the affluence that brings us. But Jesus summons us to follow him no matter the circumstance we're in. And so it asks hard questions of us as much as it asks for hard decisions from the rest of the world. And finally, the message is simply Jesus. When we look to Jesus, we see straight through him to the Father. That's what Revelation is teaching us, that if you look at Jesus, you see God. You want to know what God's like? Look at Jesus. 
You want to understand what God's about? Look at Jesus. The one who was and is and is to come. The beginning and the end. And so this morning, some questions for further reflection. How does Jesus challenge your sense of fear and guilt and shame? How does Jesus come alongside you and say, don't be afraid. Don't, don't wallow in guilt. Don't let shame grip your life. I've broken the power of those things. There's no need to live in fear. There's no reason to be guilty. There's no shame in following me. How does Jesus challenge you, me, us, when we cling to our fear and our guilt and our shame and it paralyzes us? Secondly, how is Jesus empowering you to challenge the false authority of Caesars in your life? And there are, in our lives, there are the big Caesars who, who lead the world and there are the Sorry, the Little Caesars, where we, get, where we get terrible pizza, but where we also, you just knew I had to use that one, right? Uh, come on. There are also the Little Caesars that, that dominate my life. How do we, how is Jesus empowering us to challenge the power of Caesar, the power of empire? empire of armaments and the empire of economics and the empire of our hearts. How is Jesus challenging us and empowering us? How do your behaviors answer the question, where is your hope? Because if I were to ask the question, where is your hope? Well, 99% of us would, would say, well, it's Jesus. And then we'd go off and worry about do I have enough money to make this month's mortgage? Or, <laughs> my hope may not be in Jesus. It may be in my capacity to earn money. Or it may be in my capacity to run roughshod over another person. How do our behaviors answer the question, where is your hope? How do we act as if our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And fourthly, are, are we willing to follow Jesus without regard to circumstance? Are we willing to have our eyes opened to the possibility that the world as it is is not the world God intends it to be? And because it's not the world God intends it to be, we're not bound by those expectations and rules, but in fact bound by he who was and is and is to come. Are we willing to follow Jesus without regard to circumstance? <clears throat> One final thing, another Michael Gorman quote, and I would really recommend the book, Reading Revelation Responsibly. It's a great, 
It's a great book. It's even available on Amazon on your Kindles, so you can read it electronically. But he writes, Revelation is image, metaphor, poetry, political cartooning. Revelation imaginatively reveals the nature of any and all systems that oppose the way of God in the world, especially as revealed in Christ the Lamb who was slaughtered. Those systems are not limited to a particular future to particular future powers, but are found in all places and times. We should therefore be examining our ideologies and isms for manifestations of idolatry and immorality. And this means we must especially, we must especially examine our own Western, Northern, American, and even Christian systems and values, not some punitive one-world government for evidences of that which is antichrist. We can create a story in Revelation that makes the United Nations the antichrist. It's been done. You can do that. But what the book of Revelation really wants to do is have us look deeply into our lives, into our hearts, and say, where have I exchanged he who was and is and is to come for the ideology du jour? And how do I repent of that and begin to live in freedom and security and hope that Christ wants to give us as we follow him? the Alpha, and the Omega. John hears this vision, sees this vision, experiences this encounter with Jesus, and Jesus tells him, write to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Over the next seven weeks, we're going to look at the message to each of those churches and figure out what message is embedded in that to us at Madison Street. Let's pray. To you, O Lord, who was and is and is to come, we give you thanks for this great story, this narrative of hope and security, this narrative that summons us to discipleship but provides us your power to live the faith. Come, Lord Jesus, Maranatha, we pray. Challenge the authority of the Caesars in our lives. Strip the power of fear and guilt and shame from our hearts. And let us live, behave, act as if our hope is in you. We pray Lord Jesus, in your name, for you are Lord. Amen.